and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Agnieszka McPeak, Associate Professor of Law at Duquesne University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Disappearing Data, which was published in the Wisconsin Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Agnieszka. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. Um, so I enjoyed reading your paper very much, especially as a former big law associate who spent a great deal of time uh, wrestling with the discovery process. As the the, the some, dreaded discovery process. <laughs> yeah, as so many of us did. But for our fortunate listeners who did not have that experience, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, discovery, what it is, and kind of how it works in the civil justice system. What's it for and what happens? Okay, so uh, civil discovery, uh, at least in federal courts, is governed by the federal rules of civil procedure, uh, specifically a set of rules that um, allow litigants to get access to their opposing parties' information, as is relevant to uh, the claims and issues in the litigation. So in the U.S., discovery uh, is actually quite broad. It's a very broad scope of information that is within the bounds of discovery. Um, and generally, um, with uh, discovery, we also have uh, sort of this parallel of preservation and spoliation duties. So essentially, a party uh, can be on notice that litigation is anticipated or pending, and then has a duty to preserve information that is within the scope of discovery. So that scope of discovery, uh, as I mentioned, it's broad, right? It's all potentially relevant information. Uh, It does have some limits, right? So uh, when one party uses what we call discovery requests, um, it could be questions like an interrogatory, or it could be a request for production of documents uh, or RFPs. When one party uses these devices to request uh, an opposing party's information, uh, you can object to discovery as being irrelevant. Perhaps uh, it's too burdensome uh, to comply with. It's too expensive. It might be seeking privileged information. Uh, and then it could also be an objection based on the embarrassment uh, of the discovery. And more recently, we've sort of emphasized the idea of proportional discovery so that the uh, scope of discovery should actually be proportional to the needs of the case. Um, so within that, we also have um, the concept of electronically stored information. So this discovery process uh, had worked, um, you know, I guess historically, this is documents, right? It's the give me a copy of that document, and then you photocopy the document, and then you hand it over to the other side in discovery. Well, we're in sort of the brave new world of big data. We have a lot of information stored electronically. Uh, So ESI, as we call it, electronically stored information is sort of the new reality of the civil discovery process. Parties are seeking large amounts of electronic information, uh, which leads to its own problems in terms of scope, burden, expense, and just the sheer volume of information uh, that needs to be exchanged in this process. Right. So if I'm understanding, then in the discovery process, there's kind of almost like a presumption that documents are going to be provided to the opposing side if they're relevant to the dispute. And then the party has to 
essentially provide a reason why a particular kind of document doesn't need to be provided to the other side. I mean, it seems like in theory, electronically stored information would make that a lot easier because it doesn't require any photocopying or any any of that kind of stuff. But it seems like maybe it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So electronic discovery, I think most litigators would say it's complicated things. Um, so now you have to think about file formats. You have to think about what is uh, located where. Uh, we also have this issue of accessible versus inaccessible ESI. So what that means is that sometimes electronically stored information is in a readily accessible format, uh, which is fine, right? You can just get it off of a hard drive or it's, it's in an easily translatable form on a server or something. Uh, sometimes it's inaccessible, right? It's been backed up, it's fragmented, it's partially deleted or completely deleted. So um, the discovery world has uh, been kind of turned on its head by ESI and this idea of needing to produce large data sets. Um, and this is where we have a lot of vendors that help with this process. We have, uh, you know, s- different tools to help search through vast archives of data to try to get at what is relevant. Uh, So ESI itself, I think, um, is not, you know, as much as it's the reality we live in, I think it's still a complicated area for litigators uh, in the discovery world. Okay, so what, what kind of volumes are we talking about? And how have courts kind of tried to manage the new problems or issues relating to electronically stored information uh, to date? So generally, I think, um, you know, courts want to be hands off about discovery and leave it up to the parties. Uh, you, you know, you really have a duty to uh, respond to discovery. Uh, you shouldn't um, object or try to block discovery without valid uh, bases. Um you know, a lot of this is in terms of volume, you know, there's this over-preservation problem too, where um, a lot of big companies are now by default saving a lot of information and archiving a lot of data because perhaps they have a lot of pending litigation, a lot of litigation holds. um, And the cost, at least according to some, uh, you know, industry complaints is very high. So risk-averse companies then are just basically stockpiling all things digital because they don't want to face sanctions or other um, negative consequences in litigation by not preserving um, electronically stored information. There, there's some debate as to whether, you know, the, the cost and over-preservation problem is as severe as some say it is. But the truth is, like, we've had an explosion of data, right? So since... Um, the 1970s on with our ability to process and collect data, we now have such large volumes of information stored in electronic format that didn't exist before the digital age that it really is um, a challenge for a lot of companies. Right, right. So as I understand it, then the sort of presence or absence of litigation is like an on-off switch for certain duties relating to preservation of data. But it sounds like what you're saying is maybe the switch is effectively always on for a lot of companies. Yeah. So it it is an on-off switch in a way, right? So essentially you have um, a duty to preserve once litigation is anticipated or pending. So before that, you could be deleting things um, in, in whatever works for your company, as soon as you're on notice of litigation, 
Um, even the good faith routine operation of an electronic system. So if you have like auto deletion on in your systems, you may have a duty to suspend that in order to preserve relevant information. Uh, so it is really an on off switch. And I think for some companies who face a lot of litigation, um, they're more apt to uh, stockpile and save a lot of things instead of risking uh, preservation or spoliation sanctions down the line. Maybe, can you explain what that is, spoliation? Yeah. So um, so talking about what this preservation spoliation problem is, right? So um, we have, uh, so the preservation duty means that once litigation is anticipated or pending, you should save things. Um, spoliation is sort of like the extension of that, where if you allow the destruction of relevant discoverable information, you could face sanctions for spoliation of evidence, essentially. Um, Now, the way this works, uh, actually, in 2015, the amendments to the federal rules of civil procedure kind of changed things for what courts can do as a remedy for spoliation, uh, particularly when it comes to electronically stored information or ESI. So with those amendments, um, Rule 37 uh, basically expanded some safe harbors. So we look at whether um, there is intent to deprive uh, an opposing party of the information. If it's intentional, there's pretty broad remedies available and sanctions. So the, the sanctions could be monetary. It could be an adverse in- inference, which means that the jury or judge can infer that the destroyed content would have been unfavorable to the party that destroyed it. Uh, it could even lead to dismissal of a case. So, uh, so it can be pretty extreme. Now, I mentioned those 2015 amendments. You know, this used to be um, all within the purview of like inherent inherent powers of the court. So, even though the rules have guidelines or uh, have have some remedies written into them, uh, inherent powers courts could actually uh, pretty broadly exercise their discretion to remedy. Um, Spoliation and the 2015 rules were meant to sort of uh, clarify and curtail some of the more severe punishments. So we now really do look at intent, um, and if there's no intent, then we really look at prejudice to the opposing party. And if there's if it prejudices the opposing party, then um, remedial measures to the extent necessary may be allowed, but not the broadest of sanctions. Essentially, um, so this is the world that a lot of uh, litigants live in, right? This idea that um, you don't want to destroy data and then later face sanctions if you had some sort of duty to preserve it and you can't produce it in civil discovery. Okay. So this is where, in a sense, your paper really comes in because you identify all these new ways in which people use computers and social media where sort of the deletion of information is built into the functionality of what they're using. Yeah. So, so this paper really picks up here, right? So um, in the realm of just law and technology and this idea of privacy law uh, and how our um, tech and devices create and store information, we're actually seeing uh, an important trend. Uh, and I think a good trend uh, towards what uh, what is called often privacy by design. So what this means is that uh, privacy in in the design of new applications and platforms should be something that is sort of proactively dealt with from the ground up. This means that when a new platform or communication tool or other 
um, tech development is being designed, we should think about privacy. Um, what this could mean is data minimization, uh, which essentially means saving less. So it could be creating less data, saving less information, saving it for a shorter amount of time. Um, these ideas of sort of data hygiene and ephemeral content. Um, and ephemeral, uh, when I say an ephemeral application, it just means that it doesn't meaningfully save the content of communications. Uh, this is kind of the reality and trend in a lot of our communication tools. So Snapchat is the big example here. Um, so Brian, I know you're on Twitter because we follow each other. Uh, yeah. And I know you're on Facebook because we're Facebook friends. Uh, do you use Snapchat? I have never used Snapchat. I'm really outing myself as being in the over, yeah. over 40 crowd here. Well, so I also know like, you know, you're, you're the one doing the, you're the interviewer, but I'm asking you <laughs> questions. But so I think, you know, for a lot of us, Snapchat is like not, you know, it's silly, right? It's goofy. It's what teenagers use maybe for nefarious purposes mm. uh, as the silly filters. And, you know, if you've ever seen a photograph of someone with weird puppy ears, uh, superimposed on their picture. That's Snapchat, right? That's what Snapchat does. Um, but what's significant about an app like Snapchat is that it is like the total antithesis to Facebook. So uh, I'll ask you this. Have you ever downloaded your Facebook account? Terrified. No. No, terrified, right? <laughs> I, um, I make my students do this in uh, my privacy law course. I make them do it at the beginning of my social media discovery course uh, to see their reactions to what's on there, right? So um, it, it archives everything unless you affirmatively delete it. It has messages like the one-on-one -on -one communication. It has photos. It has the ISP addresses and, you know, or the... the um, you know, information about all of your active sessions, what devices you log into from. Uh, it has everything in there, right? And it's all archived and it's all in a nice, convenient, downloadable package that the account holder can download themselves. Uh, Snapchat, on the other hand, doesn't actually save the content of communications and it doesn't save metadata. So the information that is sort of, you know, uh, about when a uh, communication happened and between whom, it doesn't even save that stuff for very long. So it's sort of like we recognize, like I think every, I, I don't know if I can speak for everybody. I personally have kind of a love-hate thing with Facebook. I like it, but I kind of wish they'd just stop, right? Like stop posting <laughs> all my data. Um, and, you know, Snapchat is a market response to that. Like Snapchat is the, you don't want this complete archive of every silly thing you've said for a decade. Uh, and Snapchat just doesn't save anything on your behalf. Um, and, and that is really an example of an ephemeral application and privacy sort of by design. Mm -hmm. Okay. And obviously that is slightly in tension with what it sounds like our expectations in the discovery process are. Yeah. So there's a tension here now, right? So as we're moving from like, you know, every device and, and every electronic communication that we do is somehow tracked. Um, the reaction to that is like, maybe we want a little bit more privacy in the design of our 
of our tech tools. Um, and this trend in Snapchat is actually also an enterprise trend. So by enterprise, I mean something that is created for companies. Um, Wicker, for example, is a company that has enterprise applications that are ephemeral. Um, there's others as well, you know, Confide, Telegram, VaporStream. The way these work on the back end, they're all kind of different in terms of like security. So I'm not talking about their encryption or true sort of cybersecurity practices, but for the account holder, for the person who is using these, and really in the civil discovery context, um, there is no meaningful archive of the substance of communications. And this is an enterprise level sort of application. So while mm-hmm. Snapchat is like, you know, the reaction to Facebook and, you know, Facebook is doing the same thing with Facebook stories. They're trying to go more ephemeral in, in some of their uh, features. You know, that is a trend in social media, but it's becoming a trend in like companies too. And there's a legitimate reason for it. It's absolutely legitimate to try to minimize records that you create, like trade secrets, right? Um, company communications, like you, we don't need to save everything. Uh, and these apps make it an automatic deletion uh, type of system. So this is where the real tension with civil discovery comes in. In a lot of very positive developments for the tech, we're archiving less. So how do we reconcile that with the broad scope of discovery and the scope of preservation duties? Right. So the people creating the data want to have an ability to engage in communications that aren't necessarily always going to be like they want a choice of the kind of thing that's going to be preserved and the kind of thing that isn't. But the people who want the discovery want everything to be preserved because right. sort of the presumption is the more the better. Now you analogize to some quote unquote older technologies. I was wondering if you could talk about that for a second. Like how did it work before we had, you know, everything all our communications effectively traveling through or most of our communications traveling through computers? Yeah. So uh so one of the things that I point out is that, you know, if you think about like what is ephemeral communication, what does that even mean? Uh it used to be like a conversation. so 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 20th century i know i know very i'm I'm going old school here uh but you would like talk to somebody right you know you talk in the hallway uh you have a you'd have a face-to-face conversation um when you text someone are you intending to create a permanent record of the substance of your conversation maybe but probably not. Maybe it's just more convenient than having to talk to somebody. Uh, and there are cases where, you know, just because you could record a phone call doesn't mean you have to, right? Mm. You don't have to create a record where one doesn't just exist by virtue of uh, the communication tool. So, um, so part of me thinks, you know, so we've gone from, you know, all being in the same location and being able to talk to each other more easily, pick up the phone to wanting to text, wanting to use a messaging app instead, right? Um, So that's one thing where, you know, perhaps we don't need to expect records to be created merely because we're using a digital tool. So like digital crumbs, as I call it, still exist with Snapchat. They still exist with all of these, right? You could do computer forensics and get at some of the recent information on the devices used to create the messages and things like that. It's very hard and it doesn't go very far back, but there are ways at getting at it, but that doesn't mean we should automatically equate every single snap in Snapchat or message in some ephemeral disappearing data sort of app to 
a digital record that one must preserve. Um, but I do struggle with this because we do want um, fairness in litigation. That's why we have broad discovery. So if you say like, oh, well, you used Wicker, therefore you're immune from spoliation damages, that may not be the right approach either. So I, I do argue for sort of this fair and balanced approach, this idea that we shouldn't have a knee-jerk reaction and just assume someone's trying to be sneaky by using these tools. There's legitimate uh, reasons for it. I think uh, privacy law, so you know the FTC and, and other um, organizations or uh, governmental bodies are urging privacy by design. This is kind of the free market solution and uh, alternative to, let's say, onerous regulation of technology. Like we got to let this trend happen if it's what people want. Um, at the same time, you know, we got to keep discovery fair. I would hate for us to see a hindrance, um, you know, kind of disincentivize use of these tools that minimize data creation just because of fear of, of uh, spoliation. Um, so, so that's the balancing that, that we need to strive for and not automatically suspect, you know, trying to cover one's tracks or something by virtue of the tool or technology used. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like the problem is like, how do you distinguish between appropriate use of ephemeral technology to kind of maintain privacy and inappropriate use of ephemeral technology to avoid legitimate uh, production obligations? I mean, is there sort of like an objective or easy way to do that? Or is it just a kind of a fact specific problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it is fairly fact specific. And I'm still really exploring this and thinking about it, because I think it's a very new issue. It's only come up a couple times, to be to be honest, uh, in litigation. Um, what I think is one possibility uh, is that we have a lot of other overlapping regulations that require retention of business records based on certain industries. Uh, and we, we generally have this idea of, you know, what is an important enough communication to expect it to be saved? Um, so for example, if a company happens to retain records of all the stuff that's good for them and happens to have used ephemeral communications for anything that might have helped the opposing party, okay, so perhaps they're being sneaky. <laughs> Right. We could, draw, we could draw an inference from that. Right. Like, so, so that may be an example. But if it's like, hey, you had, you know, um, an employee working on a, on a really complicated tech trade, uh, you know, like a trade secret matter in Pittsburgh, and they're communicating with someone in San Francisco about something and they use Wicker, that would make sense. Right. It's different if it's like, oh, yeah, we don't have a copy of that contract uh, mm. because we use Confide. Uh, for that communication or something. So like, I, I think there are ways to be fair and balanced in analyzing this, but I am very interested in exploring this more because I don't know what sort of meaningful standard we can create. I'm just, um, I'm just sort of uh, foreshadowing an issue where judges might say, you know, the same way, like someone, a parent might think, why is my teen using Snapchat? They must be up to no good. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to say, why is my, why is this company using Wicker? They must be hiding something. Yeah. Like we shouldn't draw an inference of bad behavior just because someone wants to maintain privacy in a communication, it seems like. Yeah, I, absolutely. So the privacy in a communication piece of it, but additionally, 
um, you know, it does come down to data security too. So privacy by design is not, it, it's, it's, it is, it is about individual privacy and archiving of information about people. It's also a security issue. So the more data you have sitting around, the more likely you are to get hacked. Right. Mm, so like, and, oh, yeah. and more sensitive the information is. So if you've got like, so Wayne, Waymo v. Uber is the big litigation where this issue has come up. And that's, you know, trade secret litigation surrounding driverless car technology. That is the kind of stuff that you have to really protect. Uh, so it may make sense to use ephemeral communication tools because of the very real security risks that could be involved in your business. So there, there's a lot of dynamics to this that um, complicate it. Yeah, that actually is really interesting because in a trade secret context, the person who wants to claim the trade secret actually has an affirmative duty to keep the information secret. And in a sense, it's like, it sounds like they, in theory, could almost be pulled different directions. Right, exactly. So like, if you say you have a duty to preserve, and then you say, well, yeah, but all of our discussions about this trade secret we're in an ephemeral communication tool, right? You're kind of in a catch-22 in some ways. And, and it is a good business practice. In fact, it's even a good trade secret uh, duty uh, to use perhaps ephemeral communication tools, right? You might use a secured line to talk on the phone. Now you're using uh, an, encrypt, an end-to-end encrypted ephemeral application for that communication. So the fact that we're using you know, a digital tool shouldn't transform it into something that should be preserved, for example. Uh, but but I, but it is a struggle, right? We're going to have to figure this out and see how the rules can react to the reality of how we communicate. So when it came to pre-vi- like pre-digital ephemeral communications, like conversations, right, like way back telephone, yeah. yeah, way, way back in my childhood, you know, in the right. 70s and 80s, right? I mean, how did duties to preserve work then? Did you la- have like a theoretical duty to memorialize a important conversation or telephone call if there was a preservation hold in place? Or was it just like too bad, so sad? That's right, right. You know, so I have, uh, so I researched this a little bit for this paper and there were, there was at least one case I found where there was no duty to create a record where one doesn't otherwise exist. So like recording a phone call. So they had a phone system that allowed for recording of calls and they didn't do it. And that's okay, right? It's okay that you didn't turn on the auto record feature for all calls uh, with your new phone system. Um, mm. So I don't think there's a duty to like affirmatively create a record. There are, um, you know, regulations about business record requirements. So like if you're in a regulated field, you have to put in writing certain things, right? We have, you know, statute of frauds. We have things like that that require important things to be in writing. Um, so there are uh, some sort of duties outside of civil discovery. But the way this really was handled is testimony, right? Someone saying, I, I had this conversation, here's what I said, or other, you know, circumstantial evidence, we have hearsay rules as well that are a counterpoint to that. But you know, you do have circumstantial evidence about communications. Uh, we've actually seen this in a couple of criminal cases, where um, the crime arises out of something that happened on Snapchat. And it is testimony, right? It is testimony of people involved who talked about like, there's four people who saw this image on Snapchat. And they say this is what the image was. So the court can say whether that image, you know, violates a law, uh, even though they don't have a copy of it, because it disappeared. Right. So it's, it's 
really just like the digital equivalent of the same thing that would have happened in an analog world, it sounds like. In some ways, yes, right? So, uh, but some courts are like skeptical of, uh, of the fact that you use this disappearing form, um, you know, auto deletion. So there's some skepticism, but I did find a footnote in one criminal case where there was a motion to exclude uh, evidence of a text message. And the court actually noted in the footnote, like we wouldn't even be here if they would have just used Snapchat. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard to say, right? It's hard to say how courts are going to deal with this. Uh, My concern is that, you know, we need to not be too onerous in our uh, preservation duties. Uh, Fair and balanced is sort of what I call it as my um, movement towards a solution to this problem. But I just really want to identify this tension, right? Like privacy law and policy, with data minimization, data hygiene, data security on one hand, and our expectation of preservation of digital content on the other hand, and how those two are in tension with each other. Did did you notice that different courts sort of approached this problem differently? I mean, it you know, it seems to me that, you know, different judges may have different levels of familiarity as it were, with newer modes of electronic communication. Yeah, and that is absolutely a problem. So um, the Waymo v. Uber case, which I think took a good approach to a disappearing data issue. So that that case was a, a trade secret case surrounding um, driverless car technology. And, and Waymo, which is uh, a Google company, uh, was suing Uber after one of its engineers jumped ship, you know, allegedly stole some trade secrets, etc., um, that case involved a whole lot of discovery issues. And one of them was this idea that uh, ephemeral apps were being used for some of the communications. Uh, so the court ultimately said you can present evidence to explain sort of gaps in proof that they used ephemeral apps. But I don't want this to be a litany of, you know, um, accusations that there's something nefarious going on just because they use these communication tools. Um, and that was out of the Ninth Circuit, I believe. Uh, well, right. So it was out of California. So it was a federal court. So you've got, you know, perhaps judges that are a bit more savvy as to the technology. Um, I've written a lot about social media discovery and, and in my course, too. You know, I, I tell students and in my writing, I point out that sometimes you have to educate the court about the technology because understandably, you know, the technology moves fast. Um, judges may not be familiar with it. And part of sort of winning your discovery motion is also explaining the tech. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we sort of disincentivize uh, technology competence in judges sometimes. Like, for example, ethics rules, uh, rules of judicial ethics might discourage social media use by judges. And if judges don't use it themselves, they're maybe less likely to understand how the average person or company is using these tools. So it is a challenge, right? So you do have to, I think, as part of the discovery process, be very transparent about the technology and be kind of more nuanced in your arguments and analysis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in closing, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what you think is coming next? Because it sounds like this paper is very much the first foray into a question that is only going to become more important going forward. Yeah. So so I think this will become more important going forward. So on the small scale, I think we're going to see this come up as an issue in more discovery pleadings, for example. We're going to see more motions uh, for sanctions and things 
surrounding these tools. Um, in the broader sense, and something I've written about more broadly is, you know, we're beginning to recognize, or I think we should continue to move in this direction, um, recognize the privacy implications of our broad discovery system. And this is one of those things where when we have privacy by design as a positive development, uh, when it comes to data creation and storage, um, we are beginning to expose the tension between privacy and the civil discovery process. And I have argued in the past that when we come, when it comes to the proportionality of civil discovery, we should actually look at privacy burden as well, that we shouldn't, you know, expose someone's entire digital footprint uh, in a run of the mill case necessarily. Right. So you don't, shouldn't say, I want to image your entire laptop because you got hit by a car and sued for damages. Um, and, and this is one of, this is, I think one component of this tension between privacy and discovery. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Agnieszka. It's been really a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Exciting entertainment news today is about the new motion picture Therese and Isabel. The critics applauded, calling Therese and Isabel a sizzler from France. Makes the fox look like a milk-fed puppy. Therese and Isabel will be the most talked-about movie around. Produced and directed by Radley Metzger, it stars Essie Person of I, a Woman and Anna Gale. Persons under 18 cannot be admitted.